This is Inside the New South Wales Police Force, Real Cops, Real Stories. I'm your host, Adam Shan. This week, we look at the work of the Missing Persons Registry and how technology is bringing family and loved ones home. It's a real-time process, and it gets a message out there quickly for people to look out for this person. Because most of the time, we're trying to save someone's life or prevent them from being injured or making sure they're safe. And we check in with the recruits of Class 357 as they undertake their final physical tests before they leave the New South Wales Police Academy. Some people need a little bit more motivation, I'd say. It's probably the best way to describe it. But if everyone puts work in, we don't care if your fitness levels are lower than anyone else's. Just show us the effort, show us the intensity, and we'll be fine. This podcast is sponsored by Police Bank. Police Bank is a member-owned bank. Therefore, the focus is always on its members. With an emphasis on people, Police Bank shows its commitment by supporting various organisations, community groups, social clubs and sporting teams within the policing community. Police Bank works hard today to continue to protect the financial security and well-being of members of the police force and their families, friends and communities. Now, a very important point here. This podcast began as State Crime Command Investigations and the spiritual home of that production was the Missing Persons Registry of New South Wales Police. And we did a number of stories which you can find on Series 1. Cases like Bill Roach's disappearance on New Year's Eve 1993. I'm still talking to the officer in charge of that one, Detective Constable Mark Simmons up there in Armadale. He's still keen to get information that may help. And Colin Campbell from 2015 disappears out of his house in Lane Cove, never seen again. It seems like it's only a few police and his family that are still caring. But I'm seeing people listening to those Series 1 episodes. Passy Reyes was our very first case in State Crime Command Investigations. She was on the eve of doing her HSC in 2001. She was 18 years of age. Passy walked out of her home and disappeared. Detective Sergeant Jason Ferns is still working on that case. It came home to me that these cases are never over. So this is the moment to get involved. If you can help, please call Crime Stoppers on 1800 000. We spent a lot of time talking to the former manager of the Missing Persons Registry, Detective Chief Inspector Glenn Brown. Glenn's gone back to homicide now, and there's another homicide veteran in the role at Missing Persons Registry, Detective Inspector Richie Sim. He joins me now. G'day, Richie. Good morning, Adam. How are you? Great, thanks, mate. And what I was really impressed with dealing with your, and let, let's be clear, the Missing Persons Registry doesn't investigate at the first instance. This happens at the local area commands. Tell us what the Missing Persons Registry actually does. Thanks, Adam. Yes, you're correct. The frontline police um, are the first responders to these incidents, which is the very most uh, important aspect in the initial response, like with most investigations. The registry we comprise of 16 staff, uh, we have analysts, we have designated detectives, and we review every missing person case every day. We have an automated download into our database and the investigators are allocated each and every case and they look into each of those cases every day and we, where necessary, will contact the local police and assist them where possible in relation to lines of inquiry, different strategies they can use to locate the missing persons, the technologies available, just to make sure, well, 
to provide them that extra assistance. The, the detectives here are the experts in missing person investigations. They're meticulous, detailed investigations, and it's essential that we get them right from the outset. Correct. And I've seen this in action, Richie, because working with Detective Constable Mark Simmons up in Armadale on that Bill Roach case, I could see him talking to the missing persons registry, opening up new lines of inquiry, getting information. In that case, info came in that Bill possibly had been involved in the drug trade, moving marijuana down from Armadale to the southern states and things. And there was new names. And so Mark Simmons got in, in touch with the missing persons uh, registry they reviewed the information, helped him get a new investigation plan, and he's still working on that today. And I think what I did see, Richie Sim, was that if the detective has new lines of inquiry or resources to call on, he keeps working at it. And we saw in that case, Mark Simmons, he went over to a, a crash investigation in that region, but he took the file with him. He said to his boss, I'm not leaving Bill Roach's file behind. And I love the commitment and the passion about that, but they've got to have the the tools, the resources to make a difference and take these things forward. You've been in homicide doing long-term investigations. I think they're very similar. And you're bringing the homicide sensibility, if I could call it that, to the investigation of missing persons. I guess the way that Glenn Brown did as well. Exactly. And, and I think you've picked on or highlighted some very important points. The passion in police these days, and uh, it's it's been around forever. Missing person cases are not criminal investigations, and it's really important we make that delineation because it really does assist us in the area initially in getting the assistance from the public. The public need to be our eyes and ears, and we need to have that good association and have that reliability in the public that they can feel that they can contact police and provide information. But the passion of the police investigating these matters is is just commendable. It, it's a personal thing for them. The empathy shown to the family, the relationship they build with the, the families and loved ones and friends of these missing persons is special. And they own the investigations and they will police love to try new ways of finding people and, and new strategies, new tools. For example, well, we've all seen the geo-targeting, for example, and it's really important. I really want to get the message out there around geo-targeting. I want people to understand they're not being spammed. Police do not have these people's phone numbers or information. Geo-targeting is simply a process where we use the emergency broadcast system, which is uh, the emergency alert system, which is established by Telstra, and we identify a geographical area. So we basically draw a circle around an area of a suburb where the missing person was last seen, and a text message is sent to every mobile device in that area, tablet, mobile phone, etc., and it has the details of the missing person and a link in that message of, uh, to a photograph of the missing person. It's a great way for us to get the message out there very quickly because normally the geo-targeting message precedes any social media release. It's a real-time process we can establish with the assistance of the media unit and, and it gets a message out there quickly for people to, to look out for this person because most of the time we're trying to save someone's life or prevent them from being injured or making sure they're safe. And so it's it's not hard to find the motivation around that. Sure. And we were we were lucky enough to cover a couple of those uh, geo-targeting investigations as they were happening in our Series 1. In the early days when New South Wales Police was first using that, it's been rolled out for the last couple of years now, having tremendous success. But one of the issues, and it's still an issue today, is getting people to 
click the link because obviously they're they're attuned to scams coming through their mobile phone and so forth. But honestly, give me a break. The amount of things people click on today um, without thinking, whether it's Facebook or Instagram and so forth. I mean, honestly, this opportunity, people, if you're listening, is a chance to bring somebody home. And one of the highlights of covering those two stories, Richie Sim, was talking to the people who actually did click on the link and like, you know what? I've just seen that bloke. And the thrill, imagine the, the war story you get to tell for the rest of your life. I brought an old bloke or, or somebody, you know, a young person home who otherwise might have perished out there. And that to me is, you know, how much more do you need? Exactly. And, and it's, as I said, it's, it's not hard to find the motivation and the personal feelings around it when you do assist in locating someone like that. And that link, yes, a mixed message from the police because we're forever warning people about scams. Don't click links in emails. Don't click links in text messages and the like. And yet this time we're saying it's safe to click the link. But yes, we can reassure everyone. And as you said, Adam, the technology's been around for a couple of years now, but we're still having people call with concerns around why has my son or daughter received this text message out of the blue? We don't know who it's from and how do we know it's real, but we don't have their information. And the link, we're hoping that with 5G, the implementation and the expansion of 5G, there won't be a requirement to click on a link. The photo will come up in the message. But that moves with technology like everything else, with all the other tools we use in missing persons investigations, the DNA side of things, the forensic investigative genetic genealogy. We're looking at some legislation changes. Or, uh, we're looking at trying to get some more electronic signage out there. Uh, I'm looking at trying to explore the assistance of the medical alert companies. Western Australia police have already got things in place around that. And uh, then we go into the more scientific aspects of the radiocarbon dating for the historic long-term missing persons or the skeletal remains. So the technology is evolving every day. So hopefully we'll eliminate that issue of having to click a link. I'm sure you will. But I think, I think what advice can you give people who are concerned and they should call somebody or look, go to a website? What direct advice? Because seconds, minutes, hours count in these jobs. And if someone has seen someone, but they don't want to click the link, how can they quickly ascertain that this is a true link and not some, you know, scam? Well, as a general rule, the messages I've received all come from a zero triple four triple four triple four phone number. So that's the first check. Second thing, if you're concerned, call your local police. Don't call triple O unless it's an emergency, but call your local police or call Crime Stoppers. And don't ask Uncle Jim or Cousin Betty or somebody else, ask someone who knows, and it will literally mean people won't get home. And, you know, this is not always successful. There are degrees of success, shall we say, in these. And you had a case not that long ago up in Karingai where someone was found, but unfortunately the result ultimately wasn't positive for the family, but there was some consolation in the way the technology played its role. Absolutely, absolutely. In that situation up at Karinga, it was an elderly man lost in the bush and the geo-targeting message gave us a starting point for searching and the volunteers and the police searching located the man and were able to reunite him with his family. As you said, don't, don't ask the rumour mill. Get those definitive answers. If you're with a friend or family member when you're out and about and you receive one of those messages, see if they got the same message because they should have also got it. And again, if you're concerned, still call the local police station because they will know about it because they are the ones, the frontline police are the ones who are investigating it and they will certainly be aware of it. And the fact that you may have 
a criminal record or some current trouble, that's not going to have any bearing unless you're doing something at that very moment. When it comes to missing persons, Adam, I don't care if they've got a criminal record. That's nothing to do with what we're looking at. We're trying to find this person who we believe is in danger. We need to make sure they're safe. We need to check on their welfare, potentially save their life. They need help. We're working with the police on the, on the ground, the public and other agencies to get them that help and make sure they're safe and sound. And most importantly, get them back to their family, their loved ones, their friends. Having said that, if I could just say, Adam, if a missing person, if you are a missing person and you know you're a missing person, when the police locate you does not mean that we have to tell people that you've been located. For whatever reason, and I'm certainly not going to judge anyone, if someone wants to pick up and shift and move on and, and move away from previous friends or whatever it may be, the police do not and will not, without the approval of the missing person, let anyone know where you now are. But the important thing is, is that we locate you and we make sure you're safe and sound. That's a really good point because the rights of the individual are not superseded by a missing persons investigation. In fact, you can see one of those stories, listen to one of those stories in our series one, Mosesi Carver. He disappeared as of Fijian extraction and he exactly the same situation where he was found, but he said he didn't want to connect with his family. Unfortunately, they had to accept that, but it is a difficult moment. Now, when I visited the missing persons registry in the last couple of years, I noticed the video boards there and this name Alethea. And I see these cases rolling over and your guys there and girls are seeing those cases every day. What's Alethea and how does Alethea inform your approach as the new general manager of the, the missing persons registry, Richie Sim? Okay, so Strikeforce Alethea, that's our reference for all long-term historic missing persons and unidentified bodies and human remains. In total, we have about 800 instances or cases under that reference. And basically, like every unsolved murder, the case is never closed. We do not close that case until such time as those matters are taken to the coroner. We are investigating on behalf of the coroner and we want to, obviously, from a formal or legal perspective, we have obligations and requirements to meet under the Coroner's Act, but also on a personal nature for the families. We want to try and obviously get as many answers as we possibly can for those families. And those investigations are dating back to 1930s. So that is a reference we have currently. We have them under about 17 different investigations because they're based on sections of years, so five-year periods. We're currently in the process, again, going back to technology, our information management systems have improved. We're amalgamating all those investigations into one which will give us the capability to look at the information more holistically and conduct some serious analytical work around that information, the searching, the filtering. We're looking for commonalities, similarities, any information we've missed. They're meticulous investigations. As you said at the beginning, Adam, they're very similar to homicide investigations, only in the level of the detail we go into in the investigations. We'll use whatever strategies and resources we can get our fingers on to find those answers, the tools. So yes, we're amalgamating those investigations under this reference, Strikeforce Alethea, and they will be all reviewed to apply current strategies, current technologies, current abilities to those ageing investigations. 
but also just good old-fashioned shoe leather. You know, I remember going out with um, Detective Sergeant Jason Ferns looking at Passy Reyes. He went back to the crime scene, went to all the witnesses he could find, they were often elderly and so forth, looked at every single scrap of paper and even found there was one more witness that hadn't been spoken to. He didn't yield anything new, but at least you've eliminated that because that was about a path she could have walked down in one possible scenario, she disappeared from her home in, in 2001, just before HSC. So just that physical act of, of looking at it again can yield something. And I think the families were surprised, I think, and a bit shocked, but they shouldn't be because this is the way it's being done. That's right. Good old fashioned policing, Adam. You cannot beat getting out there and pounding the pavement and speaking to people and getting to know people. I think that was brought in some years ago with community-based policing. Maybe I'm showing my age a bit now, but the bottom line is, you cannot get away from talking to people face-to-face, get away from SMSs, get away from emails and everything else like that. Let's talk to people face-to-face, but pounding the footpath, as you say, looking uh, looking at the situation, the environment, the geographical profiling in a way, and what's the environment we're working in is absolutely imperative. We talk about CCTV canvassing and, and witness canvassing. They're two forms of canvassing. And yes, technology's given us the CCTV capability, which is absolutely imperative as well. An investigation has been all types of investigations solved through CCTV. However, we also do identify witnesses, as you say, and they're the people who will quite often give us those next lines of inquiry and potentially solve the mystery. Um, You know, any piece of information someone has, never, ever do I want any witness to think, oh, no, the police don't need to know that. It means nothing. It's only a tiny piece of information. But that's how we solve these long investigations, all those bits of information put together. Often it's a fragment that doesn't relate to anything to the individual, but when you've got the rest of of the jigsaw puzzle, it could be the crucial piece. If there was a criticism, not just of New South Wales, but all police forces, even around the world and until recent times, it was an attitude of, oh, well, there's homicides, then there's missing persons investigations. And, you know, we'll wait a couple of days, particularly women, I have to say, where the first 48 hours, well, well she'll come back. She's, there's some emotional issue or something like that. But they turned out to be murders. There's a couple of cases that we've covered in Series 1, again, Bill Roach in particular, which over the fullness of time, there is a strong indication of foul play. There's a million dollar reward there for information leading to a result on that one. It's that meticulous approach in the early part of the investigation, but also to help the frontline police when they're dealing with something like this, where there are suspicious circumstances that may be on their capability or their resources, but there's a proper focus now in those early hours that are so critical to a homicide investigation. Without a doubt. My passions, career's all been based around major crime investigations and homicide. However, I was lucky enough the last uh, nearly four years, three and a half years, I was at Fairfield Police Area Command as a duty officer over there, which gave me a really good grounding and reality check back to the amazing work frontline police do. And I actually now call it the largest specialist section of the police now, being frontline police with everything they deal with on a daily basis. It's, it's just, I take my hat off to them. Bearing in mind that level of response, it doesn't mean we treat any investigation less seriously, but we obviously need to be able to focus our resources with all the different investigations that we conduct. That report in that first hours of a missing person is essential. It instigates a response, and that is where we find the most relevant information. As you know, murder investigations, there was a television show, first 48 hours. It's the most important part of any murder investigation. And 
the examination of the crime scene and interviewing witnesses, canvassing, searching, all those types of things, same principles apply in a missing person investigation. We don't know what's happened to them. We approach them with open minds, not saying by any stretch of the imagination that they've fallen to foul play. We can't have tunnel vision in these investigations. We need to have open minds so that we can explore all that information. It's a massive information gathering exercise. The more information we have, the more chances we're going to have of finding the person. And then there's the long-term investigations, which I think are a real study in, in technique and methodology. And what we're sort of seeing there is familial DNA. Most coppers coming into the 90s never heard of it, n never dealt with it, but it's becoming increasingly a tool, and particularly in missing persons. And we have something like, is it 450 sets of unidentified partial or, or full remains of people? Correct. And you wonder how many questions are going to be solved in the coming years by the application of DNA, and to that extent, how important it is that the families of long-term missing persons come forward and give samples. And they may not know this, but this, this is a really important thing. Really, really important point there, Adam. Thank you. The National DNA Program was implemented by Detective Chief Inspector Glenn Brown and the other members of the registry a few years ago now. And it's calling on exactly that. Technology, DNA, we obviously started off with nucleus DNA, then mitochondrial DNA, and now we're into the familial DNA. And the Forensic Investigative Genetic Genealogy, or FIG, how unusual police having an acronym. FIG, it basically uses the ancestral aspects of DNA. It's a very, very time-consuming process because it's, again, like any investigation, it's meticulous. But we use familial DNA to establish the links and those unidentified remains you're talking about, the skeletal remains, that's how we can identify someone. But we need to have a DNA sample to start that link. And the more DNA we have, the more chance we have of doing that. Again, I highlight this is not used in criminal investigations. There's a whole different process for police to go around in relation to that. And it's very, very strict, the privacy side of things. But families, if you have a relative of any separation, so great aunt, great uncle, great great aunt, those types of linkages, please provide your DNA. You can provide it voluntarily, knowing that it will not be used in any criminal investigation. And that way, it can potentially identify and over time through very meticulous work through by scientists and then the searching through the familial trees, we can potentially identify the owners of skeletal remains. Ah, hugely important. Phenomenal stories. Phenomenal stories. I mean, I think these sort of discoveries and the work and the outcomes make families whole again. We saw in our Lost at Sea series, a fragment of a jawbone washes up on a beach in northern New South Wales. Long story short, it's connected to a marine disaster years before, and there are living relatives who always wonder what happened to their loved one. And they get, at the end of the day, to replace. It's, it actually sends chills through me now. Like there was the one where the wife was found, but the husband was not, in this case, Lost at Sea. And at the end of the show, there we are burying this jawbone with a loved one. It's powerful pro-social outcomes for people in those sort of stories. 
hugely, hugely powerful. And I can't begin to imagine the emotions these families are going through. Yes, I've, I've witnessed it through my career, but it's hugely emotional. Being able to provide those answers to the families, loved ones, friends, it's just so important that we do everything we possibly can to be able to find those answers, to hopefully put those people to rest and to give the answers to the families. Because I know that when I've dealt with these detectives on these cases, these missing persons cases stay with them and they will take them to their retirement. And the phone calls continue to the family. I've witnessed this. And I've caught the bug now as well, having worked on some of these cases to make the podcast, I'm in the same position. So you better solve some of these, but I'm excited to make this new series with you because as I say, the spiritual home of this podcast is the Missing Persons Registry. That's, that's where it all began. And I think by the end of this season, we're going to solve a couple for you, at least with the help of the public. So if you're listening now and you have some information, it might be silly. It might be, You think it might be silly, but it's not silly. It may be that crucial piece of a puzzle that's needed. So Richie Sim, who's the new general manager of the Missing Persons Registry, really wants to hear from you. How do people get involved? Absolutely. You picked it right at the beginning, Adam, and uh, this is why you're so good at this for us, uh, Crime Stoppers, one 800 000 There's also access via the internet if you'd rather not speak to someone, but you can provide information anonymously, okay? You don't have to provide your information. Obviously, we'd like to talk to you, but yes, you can provide that information anonymously without any fear of repercussion. They're not criminal investigations. We are simply trying to find these people. In the shorter term, obviously, there's safety and welfare. In the longer term, we want to find those answers for the families on a personal level, obviously on a formal level for the coroner. Now, you build on the great work of your predecessor, Detective Chief Inspector Glenn Brown, but this is a moving target. The work done yesterday won't necessarily cover tomorrow, and you've got a full agenda going forward. What are your priorities as you get into this new job? Wow, um, I'd take my hat off to what Glenn did in his uh, evolution of the unit and the staff he's got working. Well, I still have here. They're just passionate, they're dedicated, they're, they're very knowledgeable. Moving forward, technology is a big thing for, for us. There's two aspects to that. And the most important one is if we can use technology to expedite these investigations so we can find these people quickly, that is just a win-win. They're safe, they're well, they return to their family if that's the way they want to go. It also, I'll be blunt, it reduces the amount of time police have to spend on investigations because that means we can help move on and help the next person. So technology is a big thing. The DNA, the science for the longer term investigations, the technology capabilities in locating people, uh, the police force have recently uh, started using a good SAMS app, which is another form of technology which we use to, to locate people. But wherever I can look at technology to make things easier, I'm looking at electronic signage, public transport, shopping centres, things like that, which is in the very early days. Uh, as I indicated early, Western Australia have a safe and home program which utilises a medical alert company where people with dementia or these illnesses which cause them to be potentially repetitive missing persons, it provides us current accurate information to assist us in locating them. But I'd like to take that even further in that there are pendants and things like that, which have GPS capabilities and GSM capabilities so that they can be used as mobile phones. My intention is to approach medical alert companies and see if we can't get them on board around the dementia, Alzheimer's, these illnesses which tragically impact on people and send them walking and end up being missing persons. So moving forward, 
the day-to-day business is so important that we continue reviewing the missing person cases every day. Obviously, then we have the historic and long-term missing persons, unidentified bodies and human remains side of things, and then overarching technology, sciences to be able to assist us in all those investigations. That's where we're looking at, and we're moving forward to Missing Persons Week this year in uh, early August, and we'll be obviously profiling as many cases as we can uh, on a state level, nationally through the National Missing Persons Coordination Committee and the local missing persons registries around Australia, but also locally at your local police stations, uh, police districts and police area commands. We'll also be looking at doing some long-term, the unidentified bodies and human remains cases. So we're looking forward to that hugely. Great. Well, in police terms, we've tied you to a story now. In your tenure there, I wish you the very best of luck. And I think one of the keynotes that I've seen in all the work around missing persons, I was lucky enough to sit in on a a national get-together of all the squads uh, in this area. And the words, the most vulnerable in our community kept coming up. The elderly, autistic children, disabled, people who otherwise, you know, need our help. And this is how we judge our society and we deal with the most vulnerable. So true. The work that you're doing has a lot of public support. Again, I urge you out there to get involved. If you get a geotargeting text, open it, act on it. If you're a family of long-term missing persons, go and do a DNA swab. Get involved in this because this is not just the police doing jobs. It's our community looking after each other. Detective Inspector Richie Sim, thank you so much for your time today. And I wish you all the very best. We'll talk to you again during this series, but also look at series one, people. There are open cases there that you can assist in right now. Thanks, Richie. Thank you, Adam. Really appreciate your support and your assistance. That's Detective Inspector Richie Sim from the Missing Persons Registry on how you can help this vital work of bringing missing people home. In a moment, we go to the New South Wales Police Force Academy. But now, a message from our sponsor. Whether you're thinking about purchasing your first home or thinking about your next investment property, Police Bank has a range of loans to help make your dream of owning a home a reality, with deposit options starting as low as 5%. Eligibility criteria applies. See terms and conditions in the show notes for more information. This segment is sponsored by Charles Sturt University, providing education for police and law enforcement. Welcome back to the New South Wales Police Academy at Goulburn. The recruits of Class 357 are in the final days of their 16 weeks on campus. They've satisfied all the requirements of their academic training with Charles Sturt University. Just a few more drill classes to get through before the big moment, their parade on attestation day. Soon they'll be working as probationary constables on the front line. They'll be physically prepared, some in the best shape of their lives. Before leaving Goulburn, each one must pass their final fitness test, including a hand grip of 35 kilos on each hand, a standing jump of 30 centimetres, 25 push-ups, an extended arm hover of 90 seconds, a score of at least 7.1 on the dreaded beep test. And within 20 seconds, they'll get through the Illinois Agility Test which measures the recruit's ability to quickly turn and change speeds. PT instructor, Acting Sergeant Henry Hurley, has been working with the recruits. All but a few have made the grade, and he's not finished with them yet. Henry, it's great to see you again. Good, good to see you again. Yeah, yeah. Tell me, how's 357 going? 357 is doing quite well. They're, uh, they've tested this week, so done their final testing to see whether they're passing or failing. 
very few people that need some work, but we'll get that done over the next few weeks. But overall, pretty good. And how are the injuries and the stress and fatigue and things? Um, injuries backed off completely. Everyone's conditioned now to what we, we need them to do. Um, if there are any injuries, it's, it's freak events, like they're doing ankles, playing football, or something happens in weapons or something like that. It's very rare now. I think you lost one uh, over the journey who uh, went rock climbing against advice. This is one of the things you guys talk about. You, you've got to look at what you're doing while you're at the academy. Yeah, so we, we don't advise that they play any contact sports or do anything that's high risk as far as injury is concerned, even for the first 12 months of their probationary period, just to make sure you're able to be operational, pretty much. So 358's here. Yeah, so class 358 got here three weeks ago. Um, they've had two PT sessions with us so far. So they're still in the, the rough area of dealing with us, but everything will smooth out over the next few weeks. Because when people come here with their, I guess, what you call a civilian level of fitness, they might think they go to the gym or different things, but this is a step up? Uh, it can be. Some people are really fit. We've, we've got ex-NRL players, ex-Olympians, ex-high-level athletes that come through. Um, for them, obviously, it's a walk in the park. Um, and then there's some people who've just had a personal trainer who's hasn't pushed them to the levels that we need them to go to. And for them, it's a bit of a shock, but everyone adjusts and kind of gets the job done eventually. So 358, you're giving them some homework to do, some extra conditioning? Uh, yes, yeah, so they all have self-directed classes. So they'll be doing two of those a week. So we'll do a strength session with them and an interval session with them. Um, and then they've got to do a strength session by themselves and a 5K run as well. Some people need a little bit more motivation, I'd say. It's probably the best way to describe it. But if everyone puts work in, we don't care if your fitness levels are lower than anyone else's. Just show us the effort, show us the intensity, and we'll be fine. The combination of physical and psychological discipline the recruits have experienced during their 16 weeks at the academy will set them up for their careers. Because these are things, even if one doesn't remain a police officer, these are lessons in life that are, I think you don't really find them that much in modern life. Yeah, well, it depends on their backgrounds, but yeah, generally that's drilled into them pretty well down here, the, the way they carry themselves, the way they're meant to present themselves at all times. Um, and you speak to students around here, they're always on, on the watch for Sergeant Wade because he's always you know, ready to jump whenever they start slacking in any area. So the fact that he instills that on a 24-7 basis is yeah, what most people would remember about him. Yeah. What's it like when you see all the students on their parade or at a, ta at a station? It's interesting. So the first time I saw it, like I remembered my, my time out there, and you, you feel quite proud because you've had a hand in getting them to that point. You've seen where they come from. And generally, we have a pretty rough start with them, and like they're, they're quite fearful of us. Not everyone, but... You know, some of them, they don't like PT. Just last week, we had people coming and thanking us all the time because they're, they're on the other side of it now. They've made those improvements that we told them they'd make. And people that have never trained before, they've never worked out before, they, they have confidence now, their strength has improved, they, they, they're carrying themselves better because they feel better about themselves. And when we go see them after parade, they'll often want to hug us and shake our hands and, you know, say thank you, which is it's really good. Yes, yeah. the best part of the job. Because, I mean, as the, as the pace quickens towards these attestations, I'd imagine that the staff feel the same way. It's, it's a bit of their integrity, their effort, also walking out there on the parade ground. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and there's obviously students that you get along with better than others, and there's people that you kind of, like, gel with and have more interactions with. Um, with us in PT, we interact with the fitness leaders um, and the remedials, so the really good ones and the ones that need extra work. So the people in the middle kind of don't, see, don't speak to us too often unless it's required. Um, but the remedials, we see them for extra sessions. So we get along with them a bit better. And the fitness leaders, we have to meet with them every week to find out how the class is going. So generally with those ones, we'll have a chat, we'll stop, we'll talk, we'll, have, you know, we'll know a bit more about them. Um, and it's really good. We'll, we'll stop and take photos with them on the playground and you know, say good luck. And they often come back for courses and they'll come in and drop, high, drop in and say hi. And 
you have a chance. That's pretty yeah. good. I can't wait for it as well myself. Yeah, it's, I look it's, forward it's, to seeing it there April 29th. It's a really good day. It's a really good day. It's like it's they put on a great a great show and families love it and yeah, it's, it's quite quite emotional for them. Yeah, looking forward to it. Mm-hmm. That was PT instructor acting sergeant Henry Hurley. This segment was sponsored by Charles Sturt University, providing education for police and law enforcement. Next week on Inside the New South Wales Police Force, an episode all about resilience, staying in the job and continuing to serve the public after suffering trauma. I do have a sense of pride in the fact that I have been resilient enough to carry on. I I understand that um, not everybody has that resilience. I'm glad that resilience picked me to carry on and do my duties. And policing a chunk of regional New South Wales that's as big as Belgium. It's funny you say about the um, TV connotations of country policing. I watched Blue Heelers when I was at the police academy and thought, gee, working in the country would be all right because everything wraps up in a day. So I'm now living that life and that's not the case. To find out more about any of our products discussed on today's episode, search Police Bank Inside New South Wales Police. Alternatively, speak to one of the Police Bank team on 131 728. Inside the New South Wales Police Force podcast is produced by Piccolo Podcasts and Media Productions. Host Adam Shan, producers Andrew Mensel and Courtney Besgrove. For New South Wales Police, Amy Hosking, Christian Schweitzer, Sergeant Emma Key, Sergeant Megan Knight and Senior Constable Ash Bold. Original music by Anthony Bray and the New South Wales Police Force Band.